Hey, it's Kathy. Just letting you know that this bonus episode of Self-Evident definitely has some swearing in it, and it's not beeped. I'm here with James and Julia, our producers. And we did it! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I'm One so tired. Season. I'm, I'm so, so relieved. Tired. You're so tired, but how does it feel, though? What are some things that surprise you? What are some things that you learned? Surprised I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Julia? I think we all knew it was going to be a lot of work. Sure. It was just a lot of work. Yeah. It's always yeah. more work than you think, though. It, I think that even when you're like, me. Even, <laughs> even when you say, well, I guess I'll just apologize for that as your producer. <laughs> um, but no, you know, you tell yourself, I know this is going to be really hard. It's going to take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, whoops, I was, it's going to take more time. Right. You know, I've worked for other shows, but I hadn't been personally involved in trying to make a show as community focused as possible. Um, and so that part was, that was new for me. So one of the things I learned from this first season of Self-Evident is that there's a lot more Asian American podcasts than I even knew or thought might even be out there. Yeah, and that's a little sad because there are a lot of people making podcasts. Yeah. So now that we've wrapped up the first season of Self-Evident, why don't we just share a few of the other podcasts from Asian Americans that we thought our listeners might enjoy while we're working on season two? There's actually a list if anyone wants to check that out. It's got over 400 podcasts by Asian American podcasters, uh, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And on that note, all the podcasts that we're going to talk about today are also indie shows, right? Yeah, like Self-Evident was inspired by Asian American shows before us, like Nancy or Second Wave. Um, But I think we were especially motivated by all the people out there who don't have the support of a radio station or um, some other funder um, who are still like creating their own space for all the conversations from an Asian American perspective. So if you're thinking to yourself, hmm, I actually don't listen to any Asian American podcasts besides Self-Evident, well, hopefully we can change that for you. So now we're going to break this down into different genres of Asian American podcasts. Talking about genres is actually pretty tricky, but I do think it'll help show the range of shows that we're sharing and help you find something that you're going to like. And first up is reported narratives. Podcasts that involve researching and reporting a topic, like going out into the field, getting interviews and recording at different events, and then you put that together into a story. So a couple of examples of that would be Asian Americana or Offshore. Or Long Distance, uh, which I'm going to share about today. Long Distance is a show about the Filipino diaspora, and it combines history and personal storytelling in this really intimate kind of audio documentary. I'm going to play a clip here from Season 1, Episode 6, which is a deep dive into tiki bars, how they became a thing, um, and what that can show us about cultural appropriation. By the time Hawaii became the 50th state in 1959, tiki bars expanded into Polynesian-style lounges and restaurants. But they weren't just places to eat and drink. Sven Kirsten, author of Tiki Pop and several books on tiki bars and culture, says that tiki bars were an experience. Well, the tiki bar experiences really start with coming from the outside of an urban environment through the doors. Often, they would have a little footbridge over a moat with, you know, hiki torches burning, and you would enter different different reality. reality. You're in a South Seas hut or garden, 
Exotica music plays in the background. The lights are dim. The walls are colorful. There are all sorts of tropical accents like bamboo, rattan, masks, tikis. The exotic sights and sounds tickle your taste buds and your senses. Waiters serve you American Chinese food with pineapple for some Polynesian flavor. But the main course of the tiki bar is its selection of tropical drinks, and there are many to choose from. They're all served in mugs decorated with tikis, skulls, or even topless hula girls. You see, the idea of the tiki bar is to sit in a completely artificial but natural-looking environment where you drink these special cocktails and the place sort of lulls you into this illusion that you were in the South Seas. All right, I know that sounded like a tropical paradise, but didn't it also sound kind of weird? Topless hula girls and skulls? American Chinese food with pineapple for Polynesian flavor? I guess you could call that Asian fusion. By the 1960s, tiki culture was so popular that it touched on everything. Movies, music, design, architecture. Think Hawaiian or Aloha shirts and lays. A fancy night out was a trip to the local tiki lounge. Backyard luau's were popular as people built their own home tiki bars, complete with tiki torches and mugs, and record players spinning Hawaiian music. By the time the Brady Bunch vacationed in Hawaii and faced the curse of the tiki idol, tiki bars and culture were a bona fide pop culture phenomenon. Hey, this is my tiki. That's my tiki. I know what you're thinking. Why tiki bars? Why talk about them now? Well, I wanted to know more about Ray Buchan and the story of the Filipino bartenders who worked at these first tiki bars in LA. And tiki bars are actually coming back in a really big way. There's tiki bars popping up all over the place in big cities and in smaller cities, especially on the West Coast. That's Catherine Spires, and she's written about tiki bar history and the big tiki resurgence that's happening right now. And I think part one of that is escapism. The other element is that I think that tiki was really the first mixology. Catherine says that the original tiki drinks were really good, complicated but not in a fussy way, and layered purposefully. These days, there's a growing respect for the cocktail in America. Just head to your nearest fancy restaurant or bar, and you'll see a cocktail menu about as long as your food menu. You can thank tiki bars for that. But not everyone is happy about this resurgence of all things tiki. I was born in New Zealand, or Aotearoa, as we call it in the Maori language. That's the film producer Karen Williams again. We talked over Skype about a tiki bar documentary she started working on when she lived in L.A right around the corner from the Tiki Tea. I found the whole thing really fairly bizarre. They were Polynesian-themed places, but when you really got down to it, the culture and the history was pretty shallow. Karen didn't end up making the film, but her research showed that tiki bars enforced a lot of negative stereotypes 
about Pacific Islanders. Yeah, so there's a drink that they do in the tiki tea, and it's called the ogaboga. They pour this rum drink, and all the patrons in the bar yell out, ogaboga, ogaboga, when they're making this drink. That is really pretty offensive. That is real kind of jungle bunny stuff. That is reinforcing stereotypes of Polynesians as kind of jungle savages, that whole ooga-booga idea. So in New Zealand, the word tiki or hei tiki, these represent actual Polynesian ancestors. The tribes of Polynesia can trace their origins back to these ancestors. So for me, it represents ancestors. They represent spirituality and old spirituality, which is actually still very much alive today. So, you know, seeing it in a bar is really, in many ways, it's degrading those images and degrading that history. Tiki's everywhere. I meet Sven Kirsten, author of Tiki Pop, at his home in Los Angeles, which he calls a tiki museum. He's been collecting tiki masks, mugs, figures, and other memorabilia over the last 30 years. This big tiki here that you see standing there, and some of these lamps came from the tiki's amusement park. This is my smoking table with my tiki tea mugs that I designed. Sven says he got into what he calls tiki culture in the 1980s, when tiki was already out of style, poo-pooed by the younger generation in the 60s and 70s for being politically incorrect, tacky, kitschy, plastic, and artificial. And that's exactly why Sven was so intrigued. The artificiality of it all was decried by that generation. In retrospect, for me, the artificiality of it became the cool thing. The Kings actually wrote a song about Waikiki, and they rhymed Waikiki with hula skirts made out of PVC. <laughs> I love artifice, and I'm always interested by the reinterpretation of a culture by another culture. Tiki fans like Sven started researching and writing about tiki drinks, music, the overall aesthetic in the 90s. Sven's book Tiki Pop has copies of old tiki bar menus. Here's one of them. It's from a place called the Cannibal Room Cocktail Lounge. First drink on the list, right above the Mai Tai, The Black Woman. A dusky bell from deep in the jungle, sweeter than most, gets along with anything, but favors vodka. Here's another one. The Headhunter Special. You'll lose your head over this one. That's next to a drawing of a brown man in a loincloth. He's holding a bloody head and a big knife. You see, tiki bars became shorthand for what was exotic and foreign to Americans at the time. I asked Sven if he thought tiki bars were, in some way, offensive, inaccurate, an appropriation of Pacific culture. Well, you know, it's, it's, you have to decide for yourself, and I respect people that don't like it, 
But if you go to a Chinese restaurant, I don't know of any Buddhists that are offended by Buddha statues and illustrations of the goddess Kuan Yin on, on the menu. It's mythology, but they are a cultural symbol for something. I like going to kitschy Bavarian restaurants like the Red Lion and see all these representations of Germans in lederhosen and with these giant beer mugs, which to somebody like me from northern Germany is absolutely ridiculous because that's not how we run around there. But anything that is a pop culture version of an authentic culture made for entertainment and for recreation is bound to not be authentic. It was never intended to be an insult. It was created out of a love for that culture and a fascination with that culture. Tiki bars were at the height of their popularity when Hawaii became the 50th state in 1959. Even though tiki bars draw inspiration from many Pacific and Asian cultures, when most people think of tiki bars, they still think of Hawaii. So when America hit peak tiki in the 1950s and 1960s, what did people in Hawaii think? And when did Filipinos actually start making tiki drinks? That's after the break. You can listen to the rest of the story by subscribing to Long Distance wherever you get podcasts. And Paola and Patrick, who produce Long Distance, have a Patreon where they're asking for listeners to help produce future stories. So check it out. I love their theme music. Me too. Okay, so the next genre we're going to cover today is the interview show. The most popular kind of podcast out there. And, right. you know, this is really your wheelhouse, Kathy. You know, <laughs> a long, long time ago in the backyard of a pizzeria not too far from here in Brooklyn. I remember yeah. I was a guest on your show. Right, Heritage Radio Network. Yeah, you know, this is really one of those things where, like, we could name drop a million shows. And we'd still be leaving, like, a million people out, right? But... I think it's important just to give a sense for people who might think there are no Asian American podcasts out there. There are a lot, right? So just to give a sense of how many Asian American interview shows there are, you got six ninety nine per pound here in New York. There's Model Majority, Southern Fried Asian, One in a Billion. There's Mashup Americans, The Gaysian Podcast, Project Voice, Rock the Boat. Sweet and Sour, Mango Bay. I mean, you get the idea, right? There is something for you to listen to out there if you want to check it out. But today, I want to play a clip from a podcast that I really like that's based here in New York. It's called See Something, Say Something, which I originally heard about from Julia. Oh, I'm glad you like it, especially because this is a show that was originally produced by BuzzFeed, uh, but now Ahmed Ali Akbar, the host, is making the show independently. Yeah, I'm really grateful for that. This clip I'm about to play is from a recent episode where Ahmed interviews Rami Youssef, creator of the show Rami. Ahmed's asking Rami to address criticism that the show's received regarding its portrayal of Muslim-American women. And they get into a conversation about how we think about success and failures in representation of our communities on TV. In terms of what I do for season two, um, it's not really about responding to the feedback as sure, much as sure. it is like doing organic growth for what these characters uh, need and what I think they need. And I feel like... Uh, what I organically think they need is really going to, in many cases, match up with uh, a lot of the things that people want more of. And in many cases, it will make some people who are upset uh, even more upset than they thought they could be. Right, right. Um, <laughs> it's good, uh, though. I mean, I like, again, like, I, I, I like it. Like, I, I think it's all, like, really 
it's it's kind of the point and and it's really thoughtful and and you know I, I like the um like I you know a friend of mine was like yo man there's this imam tweeting about your show railing against it and I was like that's amazing that's the point of the show because like if if he can talk about the Rami character at Friday Prayers and be like don't be like this guy. Then, then now he has like a <laughs> reference point to talk about right. this thing. You know what I mean? Because like it's right. like now he gets to like now he can point to something. He doesn't have to like talk about someone in the congregation. He can just talk about me, and that that is uh, that to me makes me feel like I've done my job. Mm. Yeah, I, I kind of. <laughs> Look, it's a very challenging thing also for like two Muslim men to have this conversation because, you know, a lot of the criticism for the Muslim women would be like, for instance, like where are the shows about Muslim women? And that is like a real tragedy that, you know, there have been a lot of shows about Muslim yeah. men and so few about Muslim women. You know, it's in. And have there been I, a lot of shows about Muslim men? There have been a lot. I would say, I would say shows that have, shows or movies that have featured Muslim men are at least in like a comedy what, setting. What are we talking say, about? Are we talking about Five, I agree that the list of shows like featuring Muslim men are small. I'm just thinking about the things of last year, like Master of None, like Kumail Nanjani's work, uh, Hasan Minhaj's uh, two two shows, which are obviously not fictional in nature. Uh, you know, like movies like Ali's Wedding. We're talking Ten? about yeah. It's not. A, I'm not lot. saying it's a. I'm that's not a lot. No, okay. No, I'm not you know saying. I mean? But that's what I'm saying is like. But it's, for sure. it's so it's so baffling to me when people are like, oh, it's always it's so many. It's like absolutely. It's, are we talking about that's ten? Fair. Like are we in, yeah, in yeah. the history of television, which has been, you know, I mean, God, the the, the sitcom from what the seventy to now, we're talking about ten things, and that's that's a high number, by the way. So it's right. it's it's not like like this this idea that there's this huge precedent of why are Muslims always shown like this? Why are they always like this? It's like we're referencing four things, you know what yeah. I mean? And yeah. so it, it we we need to let the landscape and the environment grow in an organic way. And I think the uh again, I the I this isn't even about criticisms. It's it's more about like audiences letting themselves, you know, um not operate from scarcity. You know, we're we're gonna have a lot more shots. And there should very well there definitely has to be a show following a Muslim woman that, that does it properly, of course. Right. I mean, I'm not like, it, I am just laying it out in the sense of like, there's another version of this, of this narrative. Let's say like, where like Rami comes out first before like Master of None, let's just say in this theoretical world. And somebody's going to say like, sure. why are all Muslims always portrayed as religious? Like, why can't I get a show where like, <laughs> there's a Muslim who does just like eats pork and drink. So it's like, I, I definitely, I, I, I have trouble having this conversation as well, because I get the frustration. It is a real frustration to not see yourself reflected on the screen. And you can't, like, make those feelings invalid in a way. But it's also interesting how people are struggling to enjoy things because of that hurt. And that's, that's, that's really valid, I think. But it's, it's also challenging to think about it, I'm sure, as a creator. Well, it's, it's yeah, no, it's because it, it's not that it's invalid. It's just that, like, you can only do what you can do, right? And so I think the, the, the issue as a creator is when... Um, you are making something geared towards people's um, fears or anxieties or wants or, you know, um, not even entertainment wants. These are, these are very deep uh, wounds that, that, I, that I really sympathize with, you know, and, and I think that, you know, when someone makes something, it, part of it is, is a healing process to make something. But it's like, 
if my leg hurts, I can't make something that's healing someone's arm. You know what I mean? Like I have different pains and I have different things that I have to address as an artist. So I can't make something that addresses someone else's pain because I don't know the specificity of their pain. So right. if I'm doing it to do what I think they're going to like and tweet about and blog about, I, I'm not going to do a good enough job because they're just going to be like, well, that's not really how it is. So I might as well just stay in my lane and do what I know. You can listen to the rest of this interview and almost 100 other episodes on the podcast See Something, Say Something. And you can support Ahmed's team by signing up for their Patreon. Hey, it's Kathy. It's really important for Self-Evident to understand our audience. So please head over to selfevidentshow.com slash participate and take an anonymous 10-question survey. It only takes a minute, and it'll go a long way in helping us keep the show going. Thanks. All right, so next up is The Culture Show, which is kind of our way of thinking about podcasts that have a really specific focus. Yeah, you know, what comes to mind right away is the show Books and Boba, which mm-hmm. is you know, it's basically the podcast version of an Asian-American book club. Yeah, and there's also Asian Oscar bait, which is like where the hosts create Hollywood movie pitches out of real-life Asian-American stories. And there's Feast Meets West, which combines interviews with a focus on Asian food culture, also on Heritage Radio Network. And then there's Saturday School, where the hosts Ada Tang and Brian Hu basically use each episode to do an Asian-American film review. Ada and Brian are really sharp critics. Like, this isn't just listening to two of your friends share their opinions about movies and, like, give them a grade. Yeah, they really explain, like, what makes these films special and have this wealth of knowledge about movies and a love for the cultures and stories that really comes across. It makes me want to go watch these movies. That's another thing, like... This podcast isn't about breaking into Hollywood, right? It covers all kinds of work that isn't necessarily part of that system. And that's really affirming to be reminded that you can watch those kinds of things. So the current season of Saturday School focuses on Asian films that portray Asian America. This clip I'm about to play is about a Hindi film called Kalho Naho, starring Bollywood superstar Shah Rukh Khan. The movie takes place in Jackson Heights, a super diverse neighborhood in Queens. And Ada and Brian and their guest, Anjali Shah, are talking about a musical scene that reimagines the song Pretty Woman for an Indian audience watching life in New York. Should we jump to the other songs? Because I think what we want to talk about is how it portrays America and Indian Americans and... There's definitely like the skylines and stuff like that, but I think <laughs> two of the songs, one in particular, <laughs> really screams like, this is what Indian people think of America. <laughs> and the first one is this song called Pretty Woman, which is a remix of the Pretty Woman song that you all know. Hey! Pretty So it's already like a appropriation of American culture, like a classic American When song. I saw that for the first time, I was just like, what is this? <laughs> Even I felt embarrassed by moments of that song. But it, it like it achieves a level of camp too. In this musical number, Jaru Khan is trying to cheer up the Priti Zinta character by singing that she is a pretty woman. <laughs> and he basically galvanizes the entire neighborhood of Jackson Heights 
this like stereotypically multicultural collection of all races behind this Indian guy who's gonna start rapping. Listen up, girl, while you feel this way. Don't you see the sunshine coming up today? You got to feel it right, just like day after night. Don't let the sunshine out of your sight. <laughs> That's a great way to describe it. Stereotypically multicultural, which is a step above just stereotypical or just step above not multicultural like all white people it's the block party <laughs> on the streets that angela referred to earlier and then very early in it he kind of jumps out arms outstretched and then this huge american flag rolls up <laughs> behind him and then everyone i took notes on this everyone there is like there's like do rags with like stars and stripes on it. People are like holding flags. <laughs> there's like gap shirts. There's like backwards caps. And it's very like kind of like 90s, early 2000s. Like a lot of the women are dressed how you would imagine like kind of Britney Spears dressing at the time. But like overly Britney Spears. And then there's just sort of like all this stuff like there's a basketball court because Americans like basketball. Not just Americans, like, black Americans specifically. Yeah. I think part of what makes this scene kind of embarrassing is it's appropriating a Roy Orbison song, but it's also appropriating kind of the streets according to blackness. And then, like even a a gospel choir comes out at some a point. A gospel yeah. And then they have like break dancing, but then they like juxtapose break dancing with like a ribbon dance and like people dancing with hula hoops. And there's like bubbles everywhere. It's so random. <laughs> it's like, American yeah. stereotypes through this weird prism. It's so far from the reality that you can't take it too seriously as a problem. But I also think it makes the family, this main character, Nina, Preeti Zinta's character, this family, less believable because as Americans or as people who had lived in the United States for a long time, I just don't think it would fly. You know, like I, I just don't... The main character is Indian American, but definitely not written by an Indian American. <laughs> I don't know that anybody who lives in the United States would take so easily to, you know, somebody coming from India and doing that, you know? Like, obviously, it's like a not meant to be taken too seriously genre in that sense, but it's uncomfortable a little bit to watch somebody represent your country that way with so much confidence. Uh, in their stereotyping. There's a lot of confidence. It's almost like minstrel-like. Yes, it does feel that way a little bit. But it's all forgiven because the grandma eventually is won over, so that makes it okay. Right, There's this is, this is not for us. It's for the grandma. Right. <laughs> you know, I will say the one saving grace of the block party scene in Kalhonoho is that at the very least what he's trying to do is drown out terrible puja songs <laughs> and that i can get on board with in the movie the grandmother and her friends are singing and that's like a reoccurring joke where it's so bad and no one can stand it but they can't say anything and then therefore wins the favor of the NRI children because it means something when someone from india saying even i don't stand for this because it's like, you know, it's really easy to brush off the, the Indian American kids. Like, you don't know what it's, what it's supposed to be like, or you don't know the, the prayer, so too bad. I mean, it's that thing, especially in the United States, right? So you go to India, and there's a lot of selection, so maybe the singers are a little better, right? In Indian American communities, you go to a temple, it's the person who knows the song, gets to sing it. Nine out of ten times, there is an auntie there who is singing who should not be singing. 
but you you can't say anything. You really can't. Because, you know, they're worshiping God and stuff. Nobody else knows the song to sing it. And it's really important that the, you know, this religious song be sung. But it is terrible. Um, you know, like I remember as a kid, actually, and this is one thing about the movie that I appreciate. I, I really appreciate <laughs> the shutdown of the singing. Because as a kid... I used to get in trouble with my sisters because we weren't super religious, but once in a while we would be, in, we're giant, my family's giant, we would be in the temple, and we would just start cracking up in the back when these aunties started singing because it was so bad. <laughs> aunties, I'm so sorry if you're listening, but it was bad. And we would get in so much trouble for laughing in the back during these religious ceremonies. So it's like kind of liberating to have some, you know, to see Shah Rukh Khan being like, nope, you were right. It is bad. Oh, so, so much truth in the scene. I love it. <laughs> I don't know about that, but that part of it. <laughs> yes. You can hear the rest of this discussion on Season 6, Episode 1 of Saturday School. And Saturday School is part of the Potluck Collective, which has been producing and supporting Asian American podcasts since 2016. So check out their other shows at podcastpotluck.com. All right, so the final genre we're going to look at today is the Roundtable Podcast. This is where each episode dives really deep into a topic in politics or culture or just the lives of the hosts. And a few examples are Asian Boss Girl or Aesthetic Distance. They call us Bruce. Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, This Filipino American Life, Black and Yellow. And the podcast that I'm sharing today, which is called Escape from Plan A. So I don't think it's a coincidence that we're hearing more Asian Americans take much bolder steps to speak out since, you know, 2015, 2016, as the way we talk about race and politics and justice in this country have really been shaken up. And Escape from Planet A is basically the most unapologetic form of this. Like almost every episode I listen to is kind of this exercise in tearing off a conversational band-aid. I'm sure if you go through all the episodes, you'll hear something you don't agree with at some point. Uh, but that's kind of the point. So the first clip I'm going to play here is from an episode called Boba Liberalism versus Asian Left Twitter. I live in New York, but I got a lot of friends in L.A. who I go visit, um, you know, occasionally. And I go there and I meet like my West Coast doppelganger. His name is it rhymes completely with my name, like first and last name together. I go to his house. He's a friend of a friend. I go straight to his house and I'm like, this is pure Boba Liberal guy. Um this is like right after Trump was elected. And I go to his house. It's like in West LA. It's a brand new house. And I walk in and he's got like a giant like portrait of like a, like a wedding portrait of him and his like of him and his bride, like hanging <laughs> this giant thing just hanging down on me. And then, I, you know, he's having like a Mahjong party and, and people are playing Mahjong and the kids are watching, uh, you know, a Disney Blu-ray. And, uh, you know, my doppelganger, my boba liberal doppelganger comes to me and he was like, um, you know, hands me a single malt. And he starts telling me about how he's freaking out over Trump. And I find this to be a good sign. I'm like, oh, wow, great. You know, these guys on the West Coast are talking about this stuff, too. And so we're, you know, we're swigging a little. And he goes, um, you know, I told my mother to back out of this purchase contract for a home right in this area because I'm really worried that you know, Trump being elected, it's going to collapse the housing market. And I was like, interesting. Okay, so you see a lot of calamity coming from this. And he was like, well, the thing is, comps in the area have actually held up and, and, and in fact, in places have gone up a little. So I'm thinking this whole thing's overblown. <laughs> right? And I'm like, 
Okay, so the comps in the area are good, so Trump's cool. And he's like, well, if you think about it, I mean, on the immigration stuff, he's just right. I mean, you know, there's a way to come in here the way we did it. We came in here legally, you know what I mean? And there's a little bit of a wink. And this happens with boba liberals in me. Like, they kind of wink, wink at me because they, like, assume that, you know, we see things the same way. And then, uh, you know, and then he's just like, yeah, but the whole thing's overblown because I I just don't think that this is going to have a real effect on housing prices. And then we spend the rest of the night talking about, you know, how he hates his floors and he's going to, he's going to, they're the wrong color. And we spend about an hour talking about all the ways that he could, um, you know, have the builder come and change it. That's boba liberalism to me. I was like, I don't know. It was very, uh, it, it was, it was just a very dire situation uh, <laughs> to, to, you know, to see Asian Americans that I would consider very heavily, you know, they're very Asian identified people, you know, right. and they're quote politically aware and all this stuff, but it kind of just boils down to like real estate prices for them. And, you know, sort of like the regular trappings of sort of a careerist lifestyle. And I can't really fault them in a way, but I also know for me personally that, it's it's sort of an empty uh, approach because it just I don't know it just uh, it to me it, there's just too it's too um, narrow focused and it you know it just gets you, makes you very out of touch and I would say boba liberals in Southern California are very out of touch is kind of how I feel um, <laughs> oh, man. that's boba liberalism to me I don't know how you all feel but in my generation that's kind of how it is. No, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, the situation you described, um, you know, that that's capitalist realism in action, right? It's it's expecting right, that, oh, right. the future is just going to be, we're going to move into a big house in Irvine, we're going to have a beautiful lawn, and we're going to, you know, we've made it, fam, and, and you know, we overcame racism. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the planet's being destroyed by, you know, the forces of overproduction, capitalism, and and you know the United States government is invading all sorts of countries to destabilize them and make them safe for you know capitalist uh, accumulation and 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 corporations to go in and, and extract those resources so it's this very like myopic uh view of of the future right it's it's what is the expectation of asian american life uh you know 5 years from now 10 years from now and when you ask people um from from those coming from those places, it's just like, oh, yeah, you just think everything's going to kind of stay the same, and we'll we'll all have our lawns, and and we'll uh, hire the gardeners to come in every uh, Friday, and things will be uh, just dandy once we get rid of Trump. The second clip I'll play is from an episode called "Brown and Yellow Asians: Who's Asian," which came out at the same time as our episode, "The Non-United States of Asian America." Right. So if you haven't heard that episode of Self Evident yet. Um, episode two, we use personal stories and interviews to show how the label Asian American came about and how tough it is to make that term relevant to everyone that it might refer to. So this episode of Escape from Planet is a pretty good complement to what we did. And it does something that uh, I think we also try to do, which is bring other voices onto the show. So here you have their host, Oxford, who's a Korean Canadian in America, speaking with three guests, Jay, a Tamil Canadian, Serena, a Punjabi Canadian, and Kuyan, a Vietnamese American. When an Indian comes in, oh, they're one of those safe ones. They're good. But when it's a Pakistani or Afghan, then sometimes I feel like they tend to get more patronized even within Asian spaces. 
because like, oh no, you must be experiencing so much Islamophobia, you're so oppressed, even when a good deal of Pakistanis are actually Zoroastrian and thus not even Muslim, but, <laughs> or even the idea of Pakistanis, I feel, being somewhat devalued relative to Indians. And everything changes when I tell people, you know, technically I'm Pakistani, we just got yeeted because the British can't draw fucking borders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that is definitely true that in some of these spaces, there is almost a hierarchy, like a mini Asian hierarchy of how you can talk about specific communities. And so it would probably be East Asians, you know, you got to be a little bit self-hating or whatever, that liberal <laughs> guilt. And it's really fucking annoying. I, For whatever reason, my area of expertise is Chinese seniors in Toronto and New York City. And it's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not great being a Chinese senior with chronic health conditions in, in these cities because many live in like impoverished areas. And then below that, you have Southeast Asians. And there's no class analysis ever. So no one wants to talk about rich Filipinos in the U.S. that vote Republican. And they want to kind of make it appear like every Vietnamese person is living, you know, living hand to mouth. And that's huh. just not how the world works. Like, it's really odd. And then for South Asians, the analysis gets a little bit more convoluted because everyone knows Indians in the U.S. are one of the highest rated for per household incomes. But Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, Nepal may be much lower. And so that discourse gets really weird because, you know, terrorism came through. So you have to be very polite about them. Otherwise, you're making almost like a social justice faux pas. And it's very frustrating that when you have an Asian America that's supposed to be solidified, we solidify it with our own hierarchy, this hierarchy that's based on basically white liberal guilt sometimes. That's how I feel. And we, what we really want is solutions. And we want true solidarity with people that have different lived experience, but the same lived experiences and what being Asian is. Um, you know, I'll never forget um, a moment that I experienced when I was at a, it was a, a conference that focuses on, on you know, uh, topics of racial identity. And uh, there was a, a session and where all of the, the participants of this uh, program were in this room and we just asked each other these, these difficult questions. And when it came, and, and um, I was, you know, sitting with the advisors and, and participating with the advisors, but it's the participants are primarily high school students. And um, the question, uh, do you, I think the question was something like, do you consider, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you all have come across kind of uh, ideas surrounding this, do you consider Asians people of color? Uh, and a shit ton, I, I, I think the majority of that room said no um and and Damn. yeah and and i whenever i That's say crazy. i whenever i tell this story to um to to asians there everyone is super shocked um but you know i i have experienced that in various different ways uh among uh different you know different groups um with with you know a mixed number of of people of color
You can listen to the rest of these discussions on Escape from Plan A, episodes 86 and 92. And just like Long Distance and See Something, Say Something, if you're into the show, you can support it on Patreon. Well, that's our show. This bonus episode was produced by James Boo. We were mixed by Timothy Lou Lee, and our theme music is by Dorian Love. We've been on this really long journey with hopefully a long way to go. So we want to thank the podcasters who took the time to give us advice and encouragement as we were creating Self-Evident. Anne Saini, Vishal John Mohammed, Marvin Yue, Erica Mu, and Stephanie Tam. We're going to be hard at work on Season 2 of Self-Evident, so if you want to stay in the loop, sign up for a newsletter on our website, selfevidentshow.com. You can also email us at community at selfevidentshow.com. Till next time, support your favorite Asian American podcasters, keep the conversation going, and keep on sharing Asian America's stories.